1: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast. If you're thinking, oof, Matt Shawley sounding a little bit unwell, it's not him, it's me, Luke Jones. I'm sitting in for Matt all this week on Times Radio. Today we're going to be talking about prisons the pandemic has shown up a lot of problems in the prison system some things that were already there but maybe we just weren't paying attention but of course the pandemic has heightened some of them we're going to be hearing from somebody who is a prison officer someone who uh, used to be in prison and now works dealing with complaints by uh, prisoners and also uh, the Howard League for reform are going to be here as well first though we're going to check in with today's columnists Liberace, Purvis and Sylvester First of all, um, mass testing, the thing that's on the on the front of the Times, um, Rachel, what, what do you make of that? Earlier we were hearing Alison Pollock, uh, public health professor from, from Newcastle University, who was basically saying, we're not sure it works and it's a waste of money.
2: Well, there is also an issue about the potential for false positives, Mm. um, and that sense of false sense of security that you may get if you get a negative. So there is a danger of the inaccuracy of these tests. But what I think is quite interesting is Boris Johnson, obviously the great optimist, is really, really keen to open up as much as possible and as fast as possible. But with this testing regime, he's definitely putting responsibility back onto all of us for making sure, you know, we're not covid positive and putting putting responsibility on individuals for carrying out those tests and you know making sure that they're safe to go out if they do mm. so in rather than um you know infantilizing us and saying the government tells you you must do this or you mustn't do that it's kind of putting responsibility back onto all of us
1: and, and Libby what do you make of the of the kind of liberty freedom end of under the arguments of this
3: Well, never mind that. Most of the liberties have been chipped away at all year, haven't they? The point is, Alison Pollock said it all. Everybody later on, roll back and listen to Alison Pollock. As the Lancet has said early on, you know, the British Medical Journal has said early on, this is, it's unevaluated, it is unscientific, it is nonsense. Besides, I do not think people will do it. Who the hell is going to do, unless their employers make them, Hmm. two tests a week with a positive 58% false positive rate among the asymptomatic? that is a solid figure apparently Uh, they're not going to do it because immediately it means oh I've got a positive so therefore you must get a PCR that will take two days to get back two three days out of your life I don't think people will comply. I don't think it will happen unless people are made to do it. It's a most massive waste of money, and it is unscientific. Again, Alison Pollock really said it all, as it has been said before repeatedly in the BMJ. Mm. Uh, it's, it's nonsense. I think it's nice that Ra- Rachel has been quite kind and saying, oh, well, it's, you know, <laughs> Boris is putting... <laughs> 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 Boris is, is at last yeah. giving us back our personal responsibility. But I think it's nonsense. There you go.
1: So it sounds like neither of you are going to take this up. Is that fair?
3: Well, my children
2: have been doing these tests for, because they have to. Of school. course, schools, yes. Um, so, uh, and actually, I think potentially we could all be doing it in the household, but I, I, I haven't been, partly for the reasons Libby says, actually, because it's, um, I guess if they test positive, the chances are we'll all be positive. But mm. it's, um, you don't want to, it's difficult to risk it, isn't it?
1: Yeah. And of course, the, the other thing in this uh, bumper announcement we're going to get later is, uh, an update on vaccine passports, Covid certificates, however you however you phrase them, um, Libya, are you comfortable with the idea I mean, you 're itching to get back into a theater. Will you happily have you know, waft <laughs> an app on your phone saying that you 've been infected recently had your vaccine or you know tested negative yeah. you comply the- the-
3: theaters if theaters want that if if any public place wants that, I think that 's fine. I think for a period to have the possibility of a certificate which gets you in you know, no fuss quite quickly. To the places you want to be i think that's fine obviously they're not going to do it into shops and they're not going to do it into into pubs and so on Uh, i i don't see any great problem with it i don't think it'll last long i think the whole thing is probably going to fade out eventually but uh, i don't see that it's particularly intrusive it depends on the way they do it really um, we, we don't know the detail yet, and until we know the detail, we can't tell how many, of, mm. how much of our privacy and liberty is going. But on the whole, yes, you know, do that certainly. And I'd do a test if, the, if a theatre said give, do a test outside, do a PCR test, or, um, you know, not a PCR test, a lateral flow test. I'd do that too. I just think this whole business of mass screening twice a week is an absurdity.
1: Mm. Um, but Rachel, the other day on Weekend Breakfast, we had Sharon Chakrabarti talking about this, and not only was she not comfortable with the idea of the government facilitating this if businesses or events wanted to do it, but she said actually they should go on further and say, no, you are not allowed to do this. You can't take it upon yourself to demand to see this kind of information from people before you let people in. Is that fair?
2: Well, so I, I actually don't mind it, and I, but I don't particularly mind the idea of an ID card because I think if it helps make things run more efficiently... Uh, then we, we've all sacrificed so many kind of freedoms already. Mm. Uh, and if it means you can go to the theatre... I think it's interesting that Boris Johnson's backed away from saying you're going to need this vaccine passport to go to the pub, uh, partly because of a huge backlash from the Tory MPs. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, it's, it's not an absolute right to go to the theatre if it helps us to get the theatres open, then that's great. I don't mind it, if I'm honest. Uh, I think this is what I think would be really wrong is if um, companies could say to um, people, you know, you have to have some kind of um, uh, you have to be vaccinated or do you have to have a vaccine passport to come to work. I think that's more comp- complicated and problematic.
1: Hmm. let's move on to uh, more interesting things Rachel first of all you wanted to point out um, uh, James Kirkup's column in in the paper today uh, again making reference to um, good old Peter Hennessy's good chap theory of of the constitution in the UK and and how at the moment uh, James Kirkup's writing uh, how, how that relates to David Cameron
2: I think what's really interesting that um, Peter Hennessy's argument has always been that we don't have a written constitution in this country and that the government really depends on that sort of good chap theory, he calls it, mm. of politics, that that politicians, prime ministers, leaders, ministers do the decent thing and do the right thing, both in office and after office. And that's completely broken down now, really. And the, David Cameron is just one example of that. Um, but actually, you know, Boris Johnson doesn't follow the good chap theory of politics. He doesn't, can't, barely see a rule that he doesn't want to break. You know, whether that's breaking international law over Brexit or in his private life, and, and that sort of the, and it's quite dangerous. Once the good chap theory breaks down, you then need to have a far more regulated rules-based system. So I think the the fact that there has been this loophole that's emerged for former prime ministers and the rules that govern the way they behave, mm. um, you know that's going to have to be tightened up now because the good chap theory is not working. Well it's not
1: just the good chap theory, it's also the, the flip of that isn't it? Because James Kirkup says long before Peter Hennessy, although I imagine not that too long before, Aristotle identified a sense of shame as, as a virtue essential for an orderly society. Libby, is it, is it that as well, that it's not just oh you're not being a good chap it's just the the fear of shame has gone
3: oh absolutely i mean i uh, my heart is broken because i was at the time of the first coalition i thought cameron might be quite a good thing quite a basically a decent chap Mm. but i mean any of us on the outer margins of the great and the good who've sat on, I mean I was on the National Maritime Museum Trustees Committee, people been on parish councils and so on, have you any idea what the Nolan rules are like? You have to make all sorts of declarations proving that none of your family have got any shares in anything which might possibly at any point be advantaged by any possible thing which your possible committee which you are working for for no money yeah. and usually for no expenses either, for months and years you know, everybody signs up to the Nolan Rules. And then you get this rich man, this former prime minister, quite clearly trying to get a billion or so into his bank account with this seedy business. It's absolutely heartbreaking. And I think it demoralises everybody. And I think it will also stop, make a lot of people refuse to take any form of public office, as some academics have, you mm-hmm. know, in universities. They say, we're not signing up to the Nolan Rules. And I think it's absolutely terrible what he's done in on many levels
1: so what needs to be done then Rachel do we need some kind of reappraisal of it do we need another Nolan review do we need something to kind of look through this again to actually made I don't know recommend something more likely to be followed in this day and age
2: Well, I think there definitely needs to be more rules around what a former prime minister can do, because it it doesn't look like David Cameron has actually broken any of the existing rules, even his own ones on lobbying, etc. So I think, but there is an expectation, you know, the uh, former prime ministers get quite a lot of taxpayers money, they get still the security, they get um, an office. Uh, so they, they have a responsibility then to the rest of us not to exploit that position. Um, and then also I think there needs to be a new rule or the, the, what's excluded is if you're employed by a company to lob and you, you're, and you lobby, that's not covered by the rules. That doesn't have to be declared. So there's two loopholes there that I think need to be looked at. But it is a shame that that sort of sense of decency and moral Moral kind of appropriateness has gone in yeah. politics. Sorry to sound a bit prissy, but um,
3: <laughs> no, no. Be honestly, we need to be more prissy, especially about these these former former prime ministers. Uh, it's uh, I think that Kirkup makes the point. Yes, he should be shamed. You know, he, quite a lot of quite a lot of quite sharp things should be said and done
1: about him. But do you see it as part of a, as a trend, Libby, a worsening trend, or is it just you know going to continue like this level for a while?
3: I don't know. I mean, obviously, the, the present Prime Minister is what you might kindly call a wild card. But I don't think it's universal. I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody points the finger at, at John Major. I don't think anybody points the finger at Theresa May. Uh, no. I think there, there are good chaps and there are dodgy chaps. And it's very sad when someone you thought was a good chap like Cameron turns out to be possibly a bit of a dodgy chap.
1: Yes, although, of course, David Cameron's not hitting. To uh, defend himself, I'm sure he'd, he'd disagree with the characterisation of dodgy. Um- <laughs> Although
3: interestingly, he hasn't
2: said a single thing about well, no, story. Quite, yes, so. <laughs> He's, I'm sure he could come on in five minutes if you would welcome him on, wouldn't you, Luke? Well, eight seven,
1: 7 2, David Cameron, starting <laughs> message with said, the word times. Um, come, well, on please, come, come on, Dave! Come on, come on! Although, as I, who was I saying for the day? Though the problem is, though, is at some point we're all going to slightly forget about this, and then he's going to be pushing the paperback of his book or a new book or something. You know what I mean? He's going to be back on the interview rounds again for some reason, and it's just going to be all of these questions again, isn't it? But sort of maybe long it, after we've it lost depends interest. on the
3: interview. Luke, it depends on the interviewer Cameron and Oprah. <laughs> interviewers with long interviewers with long memories are very handy
1: yes um Libby, tell us about your column in the paper today. um It's such an interesting piece about um lasting memorials, obviously people were thinking about this a lot when we had the sort of one year anniversary of the start of of, of the pandemic um but but tell us about it's it, it had the, the fascination for you in terms of how we, we mark yeah, so this is this, things. this
3: is- this is this is happily back in the non-controversial uh, line i just thought mm. it was worth mentioning again the rather wonderful memorial arts trust uh, yes. which puts people in touch with stone cutters to make interesting memorials whether it's a gravestone or whether it's something more personal that you have in the garden or even the corner of a room the this ancient human desire to make a memorial, to sort of say, look, there's a kind of eternity because there's a memory and it's worth hammering things into solid stone to say that this is someone who was valuable and who was loved. And um, there's a rather mo- wonderful man under the line um, called Derek who's just says he's got a slab of stone to make a headstone for his brother's ashes and he wants to make a curved bench put under the tree where the ashes are and sit there with a glass mm. of wine, and he's learning to be a stone cutter himself rather than hiring one of stonecutters. He's saving money by doing it himself with a chisel, and I think this is magnificent.
1: And it's, as you say, Libby, a part of a trend. And Rachel, do you think it's right, as Libby writes, that the two social trends uh, coincide, a revived appreciation for craftsmanship and the fact that three-quarters of Britons choose cremation? That's a sort of happy pairing.
2: Yes, there's a beautiful... I thought Libby's column was beautiful and very moving, but there's also a lovely... Um, story at the weekend about this memorial wall for covid that's being created opposite the houses of parliament Mm. uh on the other side of the thames and it's it's a heart has been painted on this wall for everybody who's died from covid and then people are coming along and putting the name of their loved one who's died and there is Mm. that that very deep human desire for a permanent memorial beyond beyond the memory in your mind
3: in Washington D.C., there's the Vietnam, the wall, of the, the the Vietnam Dead, which is just extraordinary. You know that that memorial wall with with names. Mm. I think it's I think it's a, it's an old it's an old instinct, and sometimes the idea of making something permanent, something made of stone, it's what we did for our son um, with a with a sculptor is you know it's it's a magical thing it's a, and you think well in the future someone will look at that and think who the hell was that but on the other hand they'll be thinking of them
1: and also it's interesting how much personality you can put into them libby to tell us about that when you were looking at doing this for for your for your late son when, there was a stone by john dasgupta about his bengali father which sort of spoke to you in some way
3: Yes, we, we, we were wandering around the Art and Memory exhibition, which this rather wonderful Trust does, and sort of trying to decide which sculptor we might like to talk to about carving a stone or making a memorial. And we, we found this particular one, and it, we didn't want anything like it. It was uh, John Das sculptor for his Bengali father with Tagore quotes on it and sort of shapes of Indian lanterns. I mean, it was the last thing that felt like us or felt like Nicholas, and yet something about the sculptor. We thought, mm-hmm. actually we just like this man. Why do we like like this man so we got in touch with him and said would he like to make something and we had a mad idea to make a tall thin thing out of wood or whatever and he did a sort of sketch of that for us and we realised no we're completely wrong and we sort of left it with him and he came back with this wonderful river washed great big giant pebble um, and said that he could carve the words of our son's poem on that the, the um, I sing inside myself the one wild song that uh, and, and so on and uh, he did that and it's beautiful and that even better thing is that he loved doing it so much that when he was asked to do something for the memorial permanent memorial garden at Canterbury Cathedral uh, he found another of those river washed big Italian uh, porphyry pebbles and he carved into it more words from our son's book which he'd read Mm. which say remember how the streets ring out for every soul that thought and felt and walked through them in weakness and in strength And that's there now at Canterbury Cathedral. And it's saying it for everybody who walked through the streets and suffered and died and lost people during the Covid year. And the whole thing sort of just falls together into into a pattern. And all you ask of life sometimes is that things should fall together into a pattern which has some beauty in it.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Luke Jones. In for Matt Chorley all this week, that was Rachel Sylvester and Libby Purvis. Next up, prisons.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: Time to talk about prisons. What problems has the pandemic shown up? There's 90,000 people incarcerated in the UK. A recent UCL study found that prisoners are three times more likely to die of coronavirus than the general population. That's why many were calling for a quicker vaccination rollout there. But what has the experience of the pandemic shown us about prisons? Are these new entirely COVID-based problems or has it highlighted much needed areas of reform? that were already there in a moment we'll hear from someone who spent some time inside but now works at the prison and probation ombudsman service we'll also hear from a prison officer as well but starting as our francis crook cook francis crook beg your pardon chief executive of the howard league for prison reform good morning
6: good morning thank
1: you very much for your time on easter monday um first of all the prisons in the pandemic um from your point of view what's happened
6: well you're right on both counts it's it's both um systemic problems that have been highlighted, but of course made worse during the, the pandemic. So we had really grotty prisons that were grossly overcrowded with around 20,000 men forced to share cells, which were designed by the Victorians for one person. Mm. And they're sharing cells with cockroaches and rats um, and they're hardly getting any exercise. Now, that was before the pandemic. Yeah. Um, of course, things were... the. The way that the prison service tried to keep people safe um, from catching it, that's both staff and prisoners, of course, was to stop all visitors visiting. So there's nobody going into prisons apart from prison officers and staff now. So no voluntary organisations, no families. And people have just been locked in their cells pretty much all the time for the last year. And when you say a cell, if you think the size of a, of a toilet, basically, you're, you're the toilet at home, not much bigger than that, with a toilet in it, very little ventilation, and you're locked in there all day, every day. You may get out for about half an hour if you're lucky.
1: And I'm sure we can all understand the impact of not being able to have visitors, not maybe see friend, friends and family, but you mentioned voluntary organisations not being able to go into prisons as, as well. Yeah. What kind of work w- were voluntary organisations doing beforehand? Well,
6: prisons are very busy places, and they rely, as do most of our uh, public services, on a lot of volunteers. So there's all sorts of people who go in. There are, there are um, boards of visitors, those are the people who scrutinise prisons to make sure that people are not being badly um, mistreated, there isn't torture or violence going on. Uh, there are um, voluntary organisations who go in and do reading groups or do exercise groups or special art classes. Um, all sorts of groups work, um, and individual work. Individual prison visitors, so somebody will befriend a prisoner if they haven't got any family, so that they get at least some social contact. Um, prisons have, for decades, have relied on on fantastic volunteers to do wonderful work, helping people to cope with prison because it's pretty scary, violent, frightening place. Um, and a very lonely place, but also they usually also help with the transition back into the community to try and keep people safe when they return to the community.
1: So with all that in mind, um, friends and family not going in, those voluntary organisations which you just outlined not going in, what do you think that the long-term impact will be on people inside?
6: I don't think anyone knows what the impact is. Uh, mm. uh, there's been a lot of uh, medical um, experiments on keeping people in complete solitary confinement which is pretty much what's happened in prisons um and people have been there for a year now normally it's it's recognized as being some form of torture to keep people in solitary confinement for extended periods of time we know that it damages mental health we know that people who are already fragile are, are tipped over the edge so the long-term damage, I think, is going to be very great. And people will come out... All of these people are going to come out of prison at some point. Mm. And then they're going to be much less likely to be able to cope with um, the busy life that we're all going, hoping to lead again. Yes. And it's not, it's not like we, most of us have suffered. And we've all had a hard time. I, I know that. Um, we've all been... You know, I live alone. It's been very difficult. Being spending long periods of time alone. But most of us could go for a walk for an hour and get some fresh air. Mm. Most of us at least could go potter out and buy some bits and pieces from the shop. And if you're a prisoner, you've just been locked in a, in a stone box without that possibility. And some people haven't even had any outside exercise. Yeah. It's been very grim. And that damage that we do to people will last for years and years.
1: And so I wonder, in terms of away from the, the pandemic and prisons generally, what has the pandemic shown up in terms of existing problems, areas of reform which, I don't know, maybe you've been talking about for ages, but, but the pandemic has made them you know, particularly noticeable?
6: Well, I think what it showed is, is a whole number of things. One is that, that prisons are grossly overused. We're using prisons for the wrong people for the wrong length of time and we're doing the wrong things with them. Um, and and that's, that's very damaging to everybody because we know that most people who come out of prison will go and commit another crime quite quickly. Mm. So clearly we're getting something very seriously wrong. Um, and it's, it's shown that we're sending too many people to prison when we don't need to particularly those people on remand who haven't been convicted of anything, most of whom won't get a prison sentence. Um, it's shown that prisons are um, very badly maintained. Uh, of course, we know we had the private sector that was asked to do all the maintenance of prisons and they failed and the, the contract had to be taken away from them because it was so bad. So, but they're very shabby now. And um, That means that the showers don't work. So it means you can't people, people can't get a shower. It means that, that you know nothing works properly. We also know that staff are not properly supported or trained. They only get a few weeks training. Uh, you don't have to have a, a GCSE to to be recruited uh, um, as, as a prison officer, and yet we're asking them to do quite a complicated job. Yeah. Um, I mean, the police, for example, are now going to be all graduate, whereas our prison officers are, you know, don't need to be educated at all. And it's not just about training people, it's also education. They need to know about psychology and uh, about behaviour and psycho. They need to know basic nursing, all sorts of things. Yeah. It's a complicated, difficult job. And our prison officers are not qualified to do it.
1: And just finally, Frances, I wonder, uh, Helen has just texted us in, to started a message with the word Times, and she said it sounds like prisons have been much like care homes. In this pandemic, I wonder if you if you draw that link yourself.
6: I think that's interesting. I I think some care homes are certainly the worst ones, uh, where they weren't um, allowing proper contact with family or friends. Um, Of course, the one there's one big difference with care homes. They most people could have. Um, internet connection with their families, so they could see families. But, of course, in prisons, no, they're not allowed internet connection or phones or anything. I mean, they, they have pay phones that they can, mm. they can call if they can get out of their cells. Some prisons now have um, cell, uh, phones in their cells, but only at certain times. And, of course, prisons have to pay an incredibly high inflated price to phone their families, and families can't phone them. So it's, it's like care homes,
1: but worse. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation about prisons uh, and we'll get the view from two people with experience of what it's like inside prisons. Uh, Andrew Morris from South London was given a four year sentence in the 2000s uh, but spent 12 years. In prison, and having come out from the other side, he now works for the Prison and Probation Ombudsman, which investigates prisoners' complaints. Morning, Andrew. Morning, morning. Andrew, hi. Good morning. Uh, also on the line with us, Mark Fairhurst, National Chairman of the Prison Officers Association, himself a prison officer at Her Majesty's Prison, Liverpool. Morning, Mark. Good morning. Thank you both so much uh, for your time this morning. Uh, first of all, Mark, I'll start with you. In terms of the pandemic, we were just hearing from Francis Cook there what the what the pandemic has highlighted in terms of issues already. Uh, with the prison system. Um, from your view, as a prison officer, what what has this pandemic been like?
5: It's been horrendous for prisoners, their families and for staff and our families. The risks involved that we take every day to keep people safe have had their toll on staff who are now burnt out and stressed out. But I must commend everybody who works in a prison, mm. staff on the front line and managers in prisons who've done commendable work throughout for the last 12 months in saving lives and keeping people safe and just to highlight what we've actually done way back in March last year we were told by the experts that we could expect at least 2,700 prisoner deaths so that's why we had to lock down to keep people safe and save lives to date unfortunately there were deaths but to date it's nothing like 2,700 we've actually had 140 prisoner deaths and unfortunately 32 staff deaths. So we've all been affected by this, but we've done absolutely amazing work and I'm very proud of the work my colleagues have done on the front line.
1: And how difficult has your job been having to deal with the, the various restrictions that have had to be put in place because of the pandemic? And I wonder what that has done to prisoners and how they relate with you as well.
5: Well, actually, the pandemic has enabled us to get back online those positive prisoner staff relationships and credit to the prisoners they've behaved on the whole impeccably they understand that the restrictions in place are to protect them and to protect the staff who are working with them so what we've had to do has been vital you know we've we've got no choice in this and nobody wants to lock prisoners up for prolonged periods of time we understand the effect that has on their mental health. We understand the frustrations, particularly when we have to stop social visits and stop their families from accessing them face mm. to face. But we have provided in every prison in the country video technology. So prisoners have the opportunity at least a couple of times a week to access their families on a laptop via video call. And so we're trying our very best. Um
1: Andrew Morris, I just want to bring you in on, on this. And before we get to, to the situation, um, Tell us about your experience. First of all, you you were given a four-year sentence in the 2000s. Do you mind me asking why?
4: Um, (laughs) That's a difficult one. I I was one of the people that got an indeterminate sentence under the now defunct um, IPP, Indeterminate Public Um, but It would have been an actual two-year sentence, but uh, Mm. the the determinate sentence would have been four years, and it was for auto-imprisonment making threats to kill, which sounds a lot more serious than it actually was, and I'm not trying to take anything away from it, because it was... You know, a serious offence. Um, however, nobody was physically injured or harmed. Um, is the one thing that I always tried to make a point about. Um, and there uh, are still uh, pro- probably about two thousand people serving these sentences up and down the country even now.
1: Mark, you are still with us. Um, in In terms of lessons from the pandemic and and things that this has highlighted for you, is, is there a is there a key aspect which you think it is in need of is need of reform? You know, it, as because it's been so difficult from the pandemic, and it's something that always was already there before.
5: Yes, most definitely, and we're currently working on that with the employer to see what the future holds for regimes in prisons. So first and foremost, safety is absolutely essential. If we don't have safe prisons, we've got no chance of rehabilitation or reform. Mm -hmm. So what we're working on and what we've learned from the pandemic is prisoners feel a lot safer when they are unlocked in smaller cohorts. So instead of unlocking full wings of prisoners, and having six staff to supervise 200 prisoners, it's a lot safer to unlock, say, 50 prisoners and have six staff supervise them. Yeah. So our, our, our blueprint, if you like, for the future is unlock smaller amounts of prisoners, and when they are unlocked, give them something constructive and purposeful to do. So when we get education and workshops back online, it's no good sending prisoners to education and workshops if they're in fear of their safety because they don't want to bump into someone that they maybe don't get on with on the streets and that, you know, relates inside or maybe they're in debt to them. So it's about making people feel safe and having those positive relationships with people so we get to know them again. And that's been really one of the gifts of this pandemic that we've had to get these relationships back online, engage more, and we get to know prisoners so we can help meet their needs.
1: Uh, Andrew Morris is back on the line, on a a clearer line, I hope, Andrew. um, uh, Mark, they're talking about, Safety in, in prisons and feeling secure being something that definitely needs to be worked on is—is is that fair from from your view?
4: Yeah, no, definitely. I hope it is a crisp line. Sorry about that. That's no, all right. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I completely agree. And just before I—I I, I lost the line. I was just saying that you know some some prisons—they're not like some of the images that we see in um, this uh, series that Raphael rowe has been doing, where he's been going to places like Norway, and you see how clean the accommodation is and how wonderful it is. Uh, that when you arrive, you receive a handshake from the prison officer, which is not the be-all and end-all of arriving in prison. But, you know, first and foremost, it's about deprivation of liberty for criminal offences. But mm. in terms of safety, I think that there are—I mean, this is a personal view—and it's certainly on behalf of the P- PPO or anybody else. Uh, in that sense, uh, is that there are—you know—there are too many prisoners and too few staff, uh, which means I think that. Safety is compromised for staff and for prisoners because it means that uh, you know staff are, are stretched; they're having to do a lot more with a lot less. And I'm not speaking on behalf of the prison, you know, prison officers because that's not my job. Hmm. Um, but you know, just from my observations, and and I think that Francis Crook, uh, who spoke earlier, she made some fantastic points that I now don't need to make. Uh, I think that Mark's made some as well. And I think you know, this is this is a time where we arrive at a place. I think, and some people might. Uh, frown when I say this, but it it, it takes away. I think the them and us. It's just us because we will bleed the same, and we're going through some really difficult times that we need to work on together. And that that's the long and short of it for me.
1: Mark, is that fair? That there's just not enough people working in prisons to make it that safe.
5: Yes, yeah, since two thousand and ten, we are now seven thousand prison officers less. We we find it difficult to retain staff when we recruit them. We're, we're losing staff at fifty a month due to re- resignations and we've currently got a thousand vacancies. Obviously the training of prison officers has come to a grinding halt because of the pandemic. We're now getting back online with that. But we simply have really violent working conditions to deal with, which puts a lot of people off when they get on the front line and they experience what they're supposed to do for a living. So we need to address safety first and foremost, but we need to give people hope when they're in prison, you know, allowing people To access the landings and do nothing but idle around wings, getting bored so it creates violence is not the answer. When people are unlocked, they need to do something purposeful. And and let's give them education skills if they haven't been schooled, Mm. the key skills that we all need in life. Let's teach them about IT and how to open a bank account, simple life skills when they're going to a workshop, don't give them mundane tasks. Let's you know, give them an MVQ or a qualification that can increase their employability. And when they are released, don't release them to sleep rough on the streets. Let's get them accommodation. Let's give them hope. But that takes a major investment, and that's what we need. We need people to take rehabilitation seriously. Instead of it just being a soundbite and sexy for politicians to announce their next madcap scheme, let's yeah. be serious about that and invest in our prisons decent living conditions, decent working conditions. And like it's already been said, we are all in this together because this is a life-threatening pandemic and we've done commendable stuff together to get through it. And there is light at the end of the tunnel. I feel.
1: And, and Andrew, in, in your work, you, you hear the complaints and, and concerns of, of prisoners. Does what you see chime with what Mark said there?
4: Yes, it does to a degree. I mean, I obviously can't talk about you know, that, that aspect of the work, unfortunately. But um, what, what I would say is just to, you know, dovetail on the back of what, what Mark said there is that we know from various reports from the Howard League, from Prison Reform Trust and all these other organisations, uh, even people like Break Free, um, uh, that, that the three main things that, you know, prisoners need to have um, pro-social lives following prison is good relationships, employment and accommodation. Uh, And if we know this stuff, we just need to be doing it. Um, And I just sometimes I struggle with the fact that uh, post release I had some difficulties, I've got to be honest, and I I have been secretive in sharing the fact that when I came out, I could understand why some people get caught back up into a system of, uh, uh, you know, a a kind of revolving door recidivism because uh, there were so many challenges. I mean, I won't be one of those people because I'm one of those people that, fight through my challenges and I don't have to commit offences in order to, to get out the other end. And I, I think I've you know, successfully proved that thus far. Um, but I think if we know this stuff, we know the ingredients that are needed, we just need to really work together and what is a shame is that there are so many organizations that are working uh, almost in isolation, siloed in their bunkers, and that's no disrespect to the organizations that are doing the fantastic work that they're doing in prisons or, or not doing at the moment, because they can't. Mm. Uh, but while they're all doing this stuff, um, trying to make a difference, uh, it, it, it's creating you know a real um, difficult difficulty, because you know just the last thing I'd say on this is that I heard a story. About a guy who was released. I don't know if it's true one way or the other, but was released and it was given a tent. Uh, I just don't understand how you know that that's something that's possible in this day and age that we release somebody from mm-hmm. custody. The, the most important thing for me about custody is that when you come out of custody, you need to leave better off than when you went in, uh, and that you know that is it for me. If you if you can't leave better off than when you went in, then the chances are you are going to get sucked into you know a cycle of reoffending again because you feel almost that. You know, nothing is going to work for you. And, and, you know, you just throw caution to the wind and, and carry mm. on doing what you've always done, getting and, what you've always got.
1: And, and, and Mark Fairhurst, in terms of your work at the, the prison, prison Officers Association, um, do you find, to Andrew's point, that we we necessarily we know what's wrong in the prison system, we know what works, but it's not happening? Is that down to... PR. Is it down to the fact that in terms of more money or whatever for prisons, actually it's a hard sell for politicians. Lots of people just don't care. Is that fair?
5: I think it's definitely not a vote winner for politicians and successive governments have failed the prison system. And during the austerity measures since 2010, it's really hit us hard. We've got less staff. Prisons are overcrowded because of sentence and policy. We haven't built enough prisons to give everybody single cell space. That's why they're overcrowded. We haven't got enough investment in work skills and education spaces for every single prisoner in our care. We outsourced the maintenance of our prisons and now we're in such a mess that I don't think we'll ever clear the backlog. It was working perfectly in house before it was outsourced. And there is too much privatization of services within prisons. We need to keep everything in house because the people who work in prisons on the front line know what the solutions are and so do the prisoners you do only have to ask staff on the front line or prisoners what the solutions are the solutions are decent conditions treat people with respect give them hope but make our prisons safe hmm. Andrew is that right in
1: terms of again I'm thinking of the pandemic here all that we've heard about the difficulty uh, throughout the pandemic in prisons all that we've heard about the safety of prisoners, attacks on prison officers, or whatever, actually, it's it's down at the bottom of the list of many people's priorities.
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, again, that's a difficult one, because I can't get too drawn into the politics at all, but um, what I would say is that the best advocates of prisoners are prisoners, prisoners themselves, but also I would say that, you know, in, in that sense, I completely agree with what Mark's just said. Um, you know, staff know what's going on, but so do the prisoners. Um, again, I haven't made a secret, and, and it's not because it's, you know, sexy or anything like that, but one of the things I'd love to do is work my way up to become a prison governor to show people how I think it should be done. Mm. Um, because I think one of the tricky tricky things for, for some prison staff, and not, you know, no disrespect, there are some prison staff who, because they don't get the backup necessarily that they, they need... Their mortgage depends on decisions that they make. It means that they don't necessarily want to make those decisions. And when I talk about decisions, I'm talking about things like they release uh, temporary, overnight release, that kind of thing. So because I was,
1: just, I was just saying that was that was interesting. Your your uh, your aim now to be a to be a prison governor. I Imagine would that be the first time that somebody who'd, who'd been in prison would be a prison governor? Do you think, if if you were to achieve that?
4: Um, I think so. I mean, there, there, there's one guy uh, who might be ahead of me on, on that respect, and he's doing some fantastic work. Geflin Jones is is uh, doing lots of work with, with prison staff and, and is working with the Ministry of Justice himself. Uh, I hope you won't mind me saying that. Um, well, it's too late now. But, uh, <laughs> um, but uh, he may, may pick me to the post, but I I'd certainly wouldn't have a problem with being his deputy if he managed to achieve it, because I think that there's so much that we can do um, and prove You know, with the, the results of... Um, decisions that are made that, you know, uh, there are opportunities to really reduce reoffending, really make a difference to people's lives.
1: That is all we've got time for on the Red Box Politics podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can listen to us wherever you get your podcast from. The Times Radio app is a good place to start. The Red Box email is out every morning. If you're not already a subscriber to The Times and uh, get access to that, uh, do. It's really good. Thetimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Uh, you can hear the show live 10 till 1 on Times Radio. Uh, I'll be back tomorrow.